have a few things to say in closing today. Our daily lives can get very complex and and very busy, as we already know. And just a real encouragement to use the sitting practice in our lives, to um, try to sit every day, even for a short amount of time. Sometimes after a retreat like this, it seems very easy to go home and sit six hours at a stretch. Or <laughs> no problem. And we go home, and there are a lot of demands and a lot of responsibilities and a lot of things happening, and it's not so easy. And so it really does require remembering. It requires remembering how valuable it is to spend some amount of time, even five minutes, ten minutes, you know, any amount of time, every moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. Every moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. And, of course, the sitting practice helps us to remember this. Mindfulness, of course, we want to practice in whatever posture we're in. And to just simply come into this posture, it's such a strong posture. There's such a a support in just putting the body into this particular posture. Somehow the cells remember, one remembers real possibilities and real stillness in our life. So I just really encourage you to, um, to make the sitting practice part of, part of a daily practice. Sometimes in a daily sitting practice, right after one has come off retreat, there's some sense of disappointment that the sitting isn't quite the same. The mind isn't quite as still or as quiet or as, even though it doesn't feel that way right now, um, still, there, there may be some sense of disappointment. And I think this is where surrender comes in, true surrender to what is, which means having a very clear and strong intention to just sit. Having a very clear and strong intention to not plan what one is going to have for dinner or, you know, on and on and on. To have that clear intention and strength within. And at the same time, remembering that it's out of our control in terms of what actually happens in the mind. And so, really letting go of results, letting go of control, letting go of ideas that we can control what will happen. This intention can be our strongest ally in our practice. The intention to be awake, the intention to know silence, the intention to stay within oneself, to stay at home, to stay inside, whatever it is that's occurring in one's external world. And so we can really rest within this intention. And this is enough. This is enough because what happens in terms of what the mind does or what what occurs, this again is simply out of our control. If we worry about this, 
it undermines our sitting. It undermines our willingness to even come into the posture because it's not something that we can control. If we think we can, immediately we're in a little bit of trouble. Mm -hmm. So the encouragement is to sit, just to sit in a very simple way and then to just let go. During the day, it's quite helpful to just come back to the posture, to use the body to know what posture the body is in, to simply know sitting is occurring. You know, if you're sitting in a chair, lying down is occurring right now, walking is occurring right now, standing is occurring right now. To simply know the posture of the body and to, again, live inside of oneself to be in one's body, to know what's happening in the body on the level of sensation. This is often our um, easiest and and, um, best way to practice in daily life is to use the body as much as possible, to really use the body as a place of of refuge and a place of, of being centered and grounded once again. And then throughout the day, simply noticing Ah, the mind is caught up in this, the mind is caught up in that, without judgment or blame or making a problem out of it. Every time one notices that a plan is happening that one has planned a hundred million times, you can't really call it a plan, but, <laughs> <laughs> but we may call it that anyway, but that something is occurring that is totally unnecessary in terms of thinking. Now, some thinking is, is truly helpful. And a lot of our thinking is just kind of unnecessary. And so the willingness to drop it without a fuss, the willingness to just let go of the fantasy or the plan or the obsession or the memory without making a big deal out of it, you know, without fussing over it, just, ah, fresh moment, fresh being right here and now, and beginning, knowing that we can begin again, over and over again. This is our possibility is just to begin again. Throughout the day, it's very helpful to notice the in order to mind. In other words, doing what we're doing in order to get on to something else. And this is actually quite easy for us to notice because there's a level of resistance, there's some degree of urgency or hurry, in the back, sometimes you can feel it in the spine, pushing, pushing us forward. But being in touch with whether we're doing what we're doing so that we can get on to something that seems more important, that seems more pleasant, whatever it may be, and in this mind, totally missing our life, totally missing what is happening right here and now. So really honoring the mundane, because this is a great deal of our life. It's, you know, for most of us, it's neither so exciting nor terrible. It's just what it is. Sometimes we get more mindfulness when, or we're more mindful when it is terrible or when it is exciting. But most of us, for most of our life, you know, most of the day is just quite what it is. And so we can really infuse our daily tasks, our our daily moments, with great awareness and kindness and and mindfulness.
to let the thought of this retreat support us. To truly let the thought of this retreat support us. Meaning that sometimes one can let the thought of this kind of a retreat undermine that one is back in one's daily existence and it's a lot harder and one doesn't have the support or the structure. And one can compare. There can be a lot of comparing happening. Notice when this is happening. Notice that um, there is some sense of undermining happening in using the thought of this retreat in that way. And that it's truly possible to allow what we have been to one another, allow the connection that has been so powerful here for us to sustain us, to sustain us truly in our daily life. One can think that probably at some point or another there are so many of us that at least one of us is sitting in the moment. I sit a lot, so. You know, there's a great likelihood that at least I'm sitting. So you can think of, of someone, of anyone, any one of us, and just have that, that um, link to know that you're probably not sitting alone. And if it's not one of us here, it's some woman somewhere in the world is definitely sitting at all hours. <laughs> Two in the morning, you know, in Italy, people are sitting. So we can really use it for strength. We can really use it so that we have sangha, so that we have community within us. We can really, really use this situation. Yes, of course, uh, one has to let go of this form in order to move into the new. And yet, we can use this form, this very form, to sustain us in our daily life. I just want to bring up something I had an insight about recently. Um, Sometimes there is somewhat of a tendency to look at or to hear other people calling, sitting, or practice being selfish in some way that it's selfish to practice. And oftentimes this has been something we have heard as women, um, sometimes around some degree of oppression or manipulation occurring, that it's selfish to spend time alone. It's not, it's not selfish to just spend time with me, but it's selfish to spend time alone. And the insight was that no one ever talks about watching TV as being a selfish activity or going to the movies or getting a good dinner or any of the ways that one finds pleasure in this world. So how in the world could sitting be selfish? It doesn't make any sense. So we we need to remember that when we are sitting, that we are benefiting ourselves. We are benefiting our families. We are benefiting our friends. And we are truly benefiting the world. So thank you very much for allowing me to connect with you and be part of this. It's, it's truly a great privilege. You know, one has ideas about what the experience is going to be like always. And I have to say, in this situation, it's always what I expect. (laughs) It's always great. Thank you very much. Much metta and much, much love. Should I do it?
<laughs> you want to do our line? <laughs> Let's do our routine. Okay. We've noticed that our, our closing talks are getting shorter and shorter. <laughs> Matter of fact, this morning we decided we could reduce our closing talk to two lines. <laughs> I get the first line. I get the first line. <laughs> I have the microphone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now that you know what to do. <laughs> go and do it. <laughs> We have a, a few other cabaret acts we could bring out. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll go on a little bit longer. <laughs> um, first of all, I'd like to say delightful to be with you this week. Delightful to be with Narayan, and you've been wonderful presence here. And. Also, I'd like to say a very heartfelt thank you to the staff. Um, I know, you know, when you're a yogi here, things are often seeming to happen almost by magic, you know. These wonderful meals appear. Well, it's not a kind of order-out situation, you know. <laughs> Pizza for a hundred, please, you know. It's, you know, and just to be aware that, you know, in all these times that we sit here, we're actually also held within the... Well, the, the commitment and the work and the energy that the staff is putting out on a daily basis. And I find that they're doing it with a great generosity of spirit. And so just, also I'd just like to mention that. We include them here. Something else I'd like to mention on a, a rather practical level, um, simply because I know that many, many of you do come here year after year after year, and it's a rather regular you know, this is your time of retreat. It's the time of, of silence that you very much schedule into your year. I'm not discouraging you from coming. I'm <laughs> what I'd like to say is that, um, as you know, those of you who stayed in the annex over the years, uh, in a rather joking manner, we call it the Ritz. <laughs> It it's, leaves a little bit to be desired in terms of ventilation and heating, etc. So next year, there is a major renovation project going on here between January and June, in which the annex is going to be really basically gutted and rebuilt into some very wonderful rooms that I hope you'll be able to enjoy in future years. The, we did have a choice because of this work that's going to be done of closing the center or basically continuing to lead retreats in a, an environment that's going to be slightly or somewhat influenced by that work. And we have chosen to continue leading retreats. Um, most of us who did our practice in Asia really appreciate what a luxury and what a gift external silence is here. I know in all my years in Asia, I doubt if I had five minutes of external silence and I was sitting and you got sort of used to sitting with transistors playing or, you know, 
people come around trying to sell you tea when you were meditating. And, you know, these kind of little things that just always were going on, you know, in some form or other. So, you know, knowing that, that it is indeed quite possible to practice amidst some noise, we have decided to continue with the retreat. However, numbers will be quite restricted. There will, we, there will only be room for between 50, possibly 60 um, yogis on retreat during that period. Um, so I encourage you to come. You can survive, you know, a few hammerings and nailings and things like that, and especially in the light of how much this is really going to offer a very wonderful facility for people coming here. But I also encourage you, if you wish to come, that you will need to book early, because there, there are going inevitably going to be a number of people turned, not able to get on these retreats. So I wanted to give you this warning in advance so that you knew what you were coming into. It may not be so bad. You know, the windows will be closed. It's not a disaster. Okay. And it's good practice, as all things are. Now, we have a tradition. We have this tradition here of, you know, at the end of every retreat, we, we do give this talk about integrating the practice into the rest of our lives, the application of the Dharma in the rest of our lives. In many ways, I actually think this talk ought to be given on the first day of a retreat. You know, it's almost as implying that there is, you know, this major separation between our retreat life and the rest of our lives. Well, what we do on retreat, of course, we are present in our lives. We are present with thoughts, with feelings, with sensations, with interactions, even within the silence, and we are learning the lessons within all of that movement of change. We're learning the lessons of peace, the lessons of openness, the lessons of nurturing an environment which is most conducive to understanding. Um, when we leave a retreat, we have more thoughts, more feelings, more interactions, more moments, just like we had them here. And these are where we really need to also continue learning these lessons. It is not that we have learned here some kind of set of strategies or solutions that we then go out, you know, as if we have a body of knowledge that we then, you know, I'm in this situation, I do this, you know, I'm in this situation, I do that. That's, that's not the case, you know. We are continuing a process of learning. On retreat, we establish some very immediate, you know, direct experience about the freedom of letting go the freedom of not dwelling, the, the wisdom of openness, the wisdom of listening well, the wisdom of being present. But these are lifelong lessons we continue learning. There's not a point when we say, ah, now I know how to do that, you know, I'll go to the movies, you know. We're learning, we're, con we're in a process of learning, we are engaged actively in this learning. Um, the only time that any of our lessons are liberating. The only time when any of our understanding is liberating is when it is lived. Not when we have some nice, neat insights, you know, 
that we, uh, you know, hearken back to with fondness, you know, remembering what it felt like to let go on retreat, you know. Yeah, that was really good, you know. <laughs> remembering what it felt like to open. Well, there's no life in this, you know. Um, insight is only liberating if it is lived. Otherwise, it is just taking its place within our rather vast collection of memories. And I think that is the most important lesson, or one of the most important lessons we, we need to take with us on leaving retreats, that, okay, this is our invitation, yet another invitation, not a new invitation, but yet another invitation to learn how to live our lives with integrity and with dignity and with wisdom, to learn how to open to our lives in a way that we welcome and receive and learn to learn how to lead our lives, guided by understanding, guided by compassion. One of the fundamental levels, lessons that we do learn on a retreat is basically on a moment-to-moment level we see what contributes to, to freedom, understanding, to balance, and what contributes to pain, to sorrow, to confusion, to contraction. We have seen these different experiences in many, many moments during our days here. These are what we call the kindergarten of wisdom, knowing what leads to freedom, what enhances, what contributes and deepens balance and integrity and understanding, and knowing what undermines it. Once we are actually able to not only discern the difference between these two here, but to discern the difference between these two in our lives, then our path actually becomes very, very clear. Because the the learning that is really evolved from this understanding is it teaches us what we need to let go of and it teaches us what we need to nurture. And this applies to every area of our lives. There is nothing that is exempt. You know, it applies to our relationships, our work, the way that we use our time, what our lives are committed to, what our lives are dedicated to. Mindfulness touches every area. These are where we need to see, is this that I am doing? Is this that I am engaged in? Is it really contributing to a sense of of vitality, of sensitivity, of understanding, of wisdom? Or is it leading to conflict, to confusion, to alienation, or to suffering in some way? You know, we don't need to be experts to learn these lessons. We feel these lessons. We know when we're in conflict, when we feel alienated, when we feel confused. We know what it feels like to be clear, to be balanced, to be connected. Everything in our lives is a part, plays a part in contributing the way in which we receive our world, receive ourselves. And our mindfulness certainly needs to reach out to touch everything. You know, you, you, don't, you don't put a, a candle out in a rainstorm and think that it will stay alight. And here in our lives too, we need to see that 
you know, if we really honor, honor understanding, honor connection, honor love, honor wisdom, then we need to really explore the ways in which we are leading our lives. Not to feel that, you know, okay, you know, it's great being clear, it's great being balanced. Meanwhile, I think I'll go and drown my sorrows in, you know, in drugs or alcohol or shopping or distractedness, you know, that we are really looking at what our, you know, what we give our time to in a way reveals what we are committed to and how we give our time. How we give our time reveals what we are committed to. Now, not very few people in the world have the choice, you know, of of spending their life sitting on a cushion, and many people don't even feel that that is the most desirable option in their search for for understanding and compassion. And in being out there in a life where there's a lot of interaction, where there's a lot of input, where there's a lot of, of change and a lot of contact, the greatest gift that we can offer to our world is the gift of of sensitivity and balance and understanding. To recognize that the whole of meditation practice is in the service of wisdom and compassion. And a life of freedom is a life where the whole of that life is in the service of wisdom and compassion. Now sometimes learning the lessons from the kindergarten of wisdom about what contributes to well-being, what contributes to confusion, Um, This learning actually translates into letting go. Um, And sometimes that's not always an easy thing for us to do, you know. In in some ways we would like to let go, but we're also aware at times of the pleasure and identity that is found in holding on to things. You know, sometimes we're aware that something is not particularly conducive to our well-being, but it's sure fun to do it. You know, it's like, you know, this is where we're getting our jollies or our highs or our affirmation in some way. And I think we, we really need to not mistake pleasure for happiness. There is something very different between pleasure and happiness. And abandoning or letting go of that which is not of service to our well-being is the greatest gift of compassion that we offer to ourselves. We always have a sanctuary within us. It is always accessible to us. Our capacity to be present and to focus is the most powerful sanctuary that we can find. We know, you know, like you walk down a city street and, and there's so much noise and sights and <clears throat> smells and sensations. And you know there's one way of walking down that city street. You know, where your mind is, is hungry, you know, where you're like a, almost like, where we can be almost like a beggar at the sense doors, you know. I want to see a bit of that, I want to listen to this and look at that over there, you know. And it's a total experience of fragmentation. And we experience it at the end of the day, you know, when we come home exhausted and wiped out. And there's another way of walking down that city street, you know, where we are really consciously attentive to one thing at a time, you know. So now my feet are touching the ground. Now I'm listening. 
I see. You know that it's not a kind of withdrawn, um, distant kind of sanctuary. It's a sanctuary of connectedness, but it's a sanctuary of focus. When we are focused, we accumulate far less unfinished business. When we are unfocused, we accumulate an enormous amount of unfinished business. You know, there's a little thing we're doing, we don't quite finish it, but we don't let go of it either. And we move on to the next task, and we do it, we do it there, we don't finish that either. So there are many things in our lives where we don't finish them, where they're not actually completed in a given moment. But there's a real wisdom in being able to leave something incomplete, but to leave it. To know that it is incomplete, but to psychologically, emotionally, let go of what we are not attending to in that moment. You know, unfinished business, that kind of accumulation means the mind becomes very busy, it becomes very divided, it becomes very scattered, and it becomes very heavy. You know, and I think there's a real skillfulness in learning how to pay attention to the transitions in our life. Many times, you know, in our days, we are moving from one thing to another. Some of them we leave, they're not completed, but we leave them because our attention is called elsewhere. And our day is really composed of beginnings and endings, endings and beginnings, you know. We end a telephone call, we begin another one. We end one conversation, we begin another one. We begin an activity, we end it to begin another activity. We end one conversation, begin another. There is so much space found in being able to pause in the transitions in our lives. Just, you know, it doesn't mean that you know, flop down onto a cushion I'm sitting, but you pause for a moment to acknowledge that ending and to acknowledge that new beginning, that what, what has ended also we are allowing to be let go of. When we begin something, we are aware of beginning it. We are there wholeheartedly rather than with this attention that's, you know, so burdened by its accumulations that it just can't connect anywhere. And I think it's really, really important to understand, you know, that being attentive and being mindful does not make you tired. What makes us tired in our lives, you know, what makes us exhausted, what really seems to erode our energy is this vast accumulation of inner busyness. Thinking is so exhausting, you know, too much of it is not good for your health. You know, uh, you know, thinking is, is fine, you know, but too much is so unnecessary and it just consumes so much energy and the, so much of the fuel for that kind of compulsiveness of mind, you know, that's always, you know, concerned about whether it's going to forget something and has to keep it all together. It's not, the, it's, it's, it's the accumulation of not learning the wisdom of how to pause in those transitions. You know, and sometimes even those pauses to have you know, some sort of point of connection. You know, it might be a hand, might be listening. But you are really resting in those pauses, even if it's only for a few moments. There's a readiness to begin again. You know, rather than feeling that our day is a day of uninterrupted, continuous busyness or input, we have a real sense of beginnings and endings, endings and beginnings, and we're there with them.
Um, last year, I, I met a woman in California, an elderly woman. And you know, you have this thing, I don't know if you have it in the East Coast, but suddenly they have this thing in California, you know, where you adopt a piece of a highway? Do you have that here? You know, you know, and you adopt a piece of a highway, and it's your job then to kind of look after it and keep it clean, mostly because, you know, public services are so underfunded. They need this army of volunteers out there. But anyway, you adopt a piece of a highway, and you keep clean. And she'd adopted this piece of this highway, and she was telling me about her, her relationship with this piece of the highway she'd adopted, you know. And that every day, you know, she'd go out there with her black, plastic bag and she'd pick up the garbage, you know. And she'd pick up the soda cans and the bits of paper and all this stuff that people thrown out of their cars. And every day she would go out there and do that with her plastic garbage bag and every day her, her plastic garbage bag would mostly be full of trash. And, you know, all these, <coughs> all these people would be zooming by her and their cars, you know, and Sometimes kids would be yelling out the window, you know, you crazy old lady, you know, and they would be pointing at her and making faces. And somebody even would throw trash out for her to pick up, you know. <laughs> and she, uh, you know, and somebody said to her, well, why do you do this? You know, don't you get a little bit kind of demoralized, you know? I mean, you never come to the end of the trash, you know. Every day there's more garbage. And, and she said, well, you know, I go out there and, you know, when I'm out there, I... I feel the sun on my face, sometimes I feel the rain, you know, I'm touching the earth, I'm walking along the highway, I see the trees and the plants changing with the seasons. She says, I don't mind what people say about me, you know, I don't mind. It doesn't matter. All this busyness that people are involved in as they're speeding out there in their cars, you know, every day I'm there, I'm really on my highway. And I'm doing what needs to be done. And, you know, it really struck me that this is kind of a, an analogy for life, you know. Like the stuff keeps coming out the windows, you know, and <laughs> you keep picking it up, you know, and you're doing what you need to do. But at the same time, you're living... I had such a sense that she was living with a kind of spirit of reverence, you know not invested in the results of her actions, didn't have a particular goal to clean up California, you know. It was just a very simple thing, you know, just taking care of this piece of the earth. And it struck me that kind of spirit of reverence is one that so, so much enriches our lives to know that really everything is worthy of our wholehearted attention, that this is actually where we find the sacred in life, when we are willing to bring that heartfelt attentiveness and presence. And in this way, the world touches us. We touch ourselves, and we touch our world and ourselves with our own capacity for sensitivity, for learning, for receptivity. Narayan was mentioning about taking some time for sitting and to be aware of how much in our lives we are, you know, endlessly bombarded with symbols, you know, through the media and through advertising, through, through the values our culture promotes. And 
So many of the symbols that we're bombarded with in our lives are all about getting and having and keeping. So many of the symbols are about becoming and perfection and appearance and performance. And, you know, we need to nurture our own symbols for peace, our own symbols for freedom. In a way, this is not going to be offered to us in, you know, major degrees or doses by the world around us. And it is really up to each one of us to nurture our, our own symbols for peace. And being still is one of them. It doesn't matter what happens when you sit. It doesn't matter if you sit and, you know, you're, you're remembering all the things you haven't done today or the things you need to do tomorrow. What really matters is that you are honoring stillness by sitting. And not to be invested that something in particular has to come out of that. And honoring that symbol of stillness, connecting with that, it is a great strength that we carry with us in our days. That there is something other than these symbols of getting and appearance and performance. There is something more profound about our life and about who we are and about the world we live in than just the world of appearances and performance. Sitting is one of those symbols. Coming on retreat is one of those symbols. We can create our own symbols. They don't have to be great rituals. But to know the things that touch us, it might be, in, it might be being in nature, to walk to listen to the birds, to listen to the rain, to see the trees. It might be being with community, with friends, that here we are meeting another heart, another mind, that is truly treasuring something other than just the world of appearances. It might be in reading and listening to tapes, but to know the ways in which we might be actually nurturing and nourishing our own trust in our capacity to be free, to be wise, to be compassionate in our lives. To nurture those symbols is important. To really look at the ways in which we nourish ourselves. Sometimes people have the anxiety about, well, how do I maintain this when I leave retreat? Well, wrong question. We don't maintain this. That is not what we are here for, is to learn how to maintain something. <clears throat> we are here to live something, to learn the lessons of our lives. Now, sometimes I know it feels like it, it's hard work to be awake. And I would say that it's much harder work not to be awake. Yeah. And the other thing is that once you start to wake up in your life, you can't turn back. <laughs> For some people, this is not always good news, you know. They like to think, oh, good, I can leave a retreat, you know, all those chocolate bars and those movies I'm going to catch up on. Well, you know, you go and you do it, and there's this little voice saying, you know, oh, do I really need this, you know? Or, you know, I don't really need this, you know. What am I doing here, you know? Well, you know, not to make a censor, not to make a judge or a critic out of that voice, not to have a lot of resolutions about how I should be, 
not to make awareness into a kind of critic. It's not a critic. But to be aware, sometimes we need to listen to those little voices that are speaking to us about the choices in our life. You know? And maybe we don't always need to be following pathways that we have followed before. We've already learned the lessons we needed to learn on those pathways. And maybe we don't actually need to be following the hungers and the and the pathways of, of, of seeking for identity and security all the time. Maybe we've learned the lessons of those pathways. And sometimes those little voices within ourselves, you know, are asking us to explore some territory that may be unfamiliar and that may be unknown to us. And they are an encouragement and an inspiration. And we are here to learn to listen. It's a Zen statement says, you know, to a sincere student, every day is a fortunate day. Well, to an awareness student, every day is a fortunate day. Mm-hmm. Every day is our invitation to learn. Well, I have a little bit more to say than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> within the body, at ease within the mind, within the heart, and using the phrases that we're so familiar with, beginning with oneself.